I want to invite you to open your Bibles this morning and turn with me to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1. And as you make your way to Romans chapter 1, would you stand to your feet for uh, the reading of God's Word? This is the infallible, authoritative, inerrant, clear, God-breathed Scripture. Romans chapter 1, beginning of verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Holy God, we are uh, eager, we are excited uh, to dive into your word. We thank you for this special time of worship, a time when the, the people of God can collectively uh, lift their voices to the heavens uh, to praise you, to honor you. We want uh, this time in the word of God to be an extension of that worship, that as we read it, that as we study it, that we would uh, see and savor the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would become better uh, acquainted with the gospel. Lord, I, I think of the, the youngest child and the, the most immature believer all the way to a grown adult, to a, a seasoned believer. And no matter where we are on that timeline, we all have room to grow. There's room for growth for each person in this room. And so may we grow in our understanding of the gospel. May we not only understand it, may we, may we revel in it. May we delight in it. May your spirit stir us up today. May you show us the kinds of things you want us to do in our community. Show us the kinds of things that need to t take place in our families. Things that need to take place in our places of employment, in our neighborhoods that the gospel would explode in Whatcom County. Lord, we trust you to do a mighty work today as the people of God are gathered once again. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the title of the message this morning is The Gospel-Saturated Life, Part 2. Last week, we looked at the first of four statements that Paul the Apostle makes concerning this gospel-centered life. The first statement that we looked at is a statement that cannot be overstated. It is a statement that is massive in terms of its appointments. It is a statement that deserves not only our full attention, but also a bit of review from last week. Here's the statement that emerges at the beginning of verse 16. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. We learn that Paul's mind was not clouded up by the world system. He was not confused by the worldly ideology that surrounded him. His heart was not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We learn that Paul's priorities were not out of alignment. They are not out of whack. They were lined up with the priorities of the kingdom of God. 
We learn that Paul refused his life to, to be taken captive by worldly ideologies. And we have seen in other studies that he warns the people of God from falling prey to a, a godless, worldly philosophy. What my late uncle used to refer to as philosophy. Don't be tricked by philosophy. And so Paul the Apostle was not sheepish, was he? He was not bashful. He was not shy. He was, he was not wishy-washy. He was not apologetic. He refused to make excuses. The Apostle Paul is a man who never backpedaled. That is why he can say with bold resolve, resolve I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the first statement that he makes about the gospel-saturated life. Now, the next statement is also found in verse 16. That second statement is one that I want to spend a few minutes explaining this morning. It, it reads as follows. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Look at it with me in verse 16. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For, and if you love to write in your Bible, j- just for fun, raise your hand if you like to write in your Bible. Raise your hand if you think it's a mortal sin to write in your Bible. Okay, now. We're going to have a problem here because if, if you look in, in my Bible, you see now this is a newer Bible, right? One of the things that's the most difficult thing for me in the Christian life is to get a new Bible. Anyone relate to that? I had a friend who used to have a Bible. You get that, Galen? Is he used to call his Bibles, his, his nickname was Biff. And so he called his Bibles Biff's Study Bible. And when Biff got a new Bible... It just, it, it, it was like a crisis, right? Number one, if he got a, a different translation or a, a different edition of that translation, he's used to Romans 2 showing up right here on the page. And in his new Bible, Romans 2 is up there, right? And it just, it drove him crazy. It drives me crazy. So I've been working in this Bible for about nine months now, and I'm still not used to it. But here's the thing is I love to write in my Bible. I want to give you a word to highlight or circle or mark in some way. And it's a word that might surprise you in its importance, but it's exceedingly important. It's the word it. Isn't that intense? The word it. For I am not ashamed of the gospel for, here's the word to circle, it. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. You're probably wondering what that it refers to. If you read the statement carefully, you see that what Paul is referring to is is the subject matter here, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And so I want to unpack this very important statement very carefully by having you look with me at three headings. And I want to give those headings to you in advance so you have an idea of, of the flow and the direction that we're heading. I want you to see the, the unstoppable power And then we'll look at the undeserved deliverance. And then finally, we'll pay close attention to Paul's unrestricted audience. First, the unstoppable power. 
We have discovered in previous messages together that the message of the gospel, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, is utter foolishness to some people. Have you learned that yet? That when you, you share the simple gospel of Jesus Christ, it, it is utter foolishness to people. I remember as a boy, nine or ten years of age, sharing the gospel with great zeal and passion with my friends. And they looked at me like I was from another planet. They looked at me like I was crazy. I remember a, a gentleman who was referring to the gospel, and he said these words to me, if only it were that easy. If only it were that easy. You have experienced the looks of chagrin and horror even on the faces of people when you share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's what people do with this gospel. They resist it. They turn away from it, they ridicule it, they mock it, they scorn it, they reject it. But here is what we need to remember, because even when I mention all those responses, if you're like me, it causes you to kind of kind of tense up and kind of freeze up and and even get agitated at times when people respond in those ways. But what we need to remember is this is exactly the way the word of God tells us that people will respond. The word of God tells us that the that the gospel comes across as foolishness to people. Go over with me to the book of First Corinthians. Hold your finger in Romans chapter one and go to First Corinthians chapter two. Paul highlights this this point in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and he says this in verse 14. He says, the natural person or the natural man, that is the, the unconverted person, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly or foolishness to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Martin Luther says this, he says, whoever does not believe and and pay close attention to what he says now, because it relates to our first assertion from last week. Luther says, whoever does not believed believe will be ashamed of the gospel and contradict it, at least in his heart and conduct. For he who finds pleasure in that which is of the flesh and of the world cannot find pleasure in that which is spiritual and of God. Luther continues. So he is not only ashamed of preaching the gospel, but also personally fights against it and refuses to let it convert him since he hates the light and loves the darkness. You'll remember when Paul the Apostle was at Mars Hill. It's one of my favorite sections in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17. And he is is sharing about creator God. He is he's delivering the message that God is the creator, you are the creature. And he calls the creatures to repentance. He talks about the God man, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's preaching and proclaiming the gospel in Acts 17.32. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, which most of us in this room hold to be 
the, one of the highest, if not the greatest realities we could ever come face to face with. The resurrection of the dead because we have been saved from the power of sin and the penalty of sin. And one day we'll be set free from even the presence of sin. All because of the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension, and the glorification of the Lord Jesus Christ. And how do these philosophers respond to the resurrection. Acts 17.32 says they mocked. They mocked. In John chapter 6, Jesus had a group of, of individuals who called themselves disciples. And I want to kind of ruin it for you by letting you know that not all of the disciples were true disciples. They were disciples in name only. And we know that because in John chapter 6, verse 66, I've always found that interesting. It was John 666, right? In John 666, we read this. And after, and after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. What do we know about these disciples? They were only disciples in name they were professing Christians, but they failed to possess saving faith. Look over at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Just turn one page over. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Paul says, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but... To us who are being saved, it is the, someone yell it out. It's the power of God. It's the power of God. Hold your finger in 1 Corinthians 1 and go back to Romans chapter 1. And I want you to see that the word translated power in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and the word translated power in Romans chapter 1 verse 16 are the same word. They come from this Greek word Dunamis. We actually get an English word that comes from dunamis. You hear it, don't you? The word dynamite. It means ability or mighty deed or strength. But this is not your garden variety power. This is just not the kind of power that you go out to your garage and, and lift some, some barbells. This is not that kind of power. It's not general power, but rather this is the power of God. But to those who are being saved, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it is the power of God. Romans chapter 1, 16, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This is the unstoppable power of God. Listen to how John MacArthur describes this power. He says, God's omnipotence describes his ability to do anything consistent with his nature. And so you walk through the pages of scripture, and I only have a few to share with you. There are many, many, many points where we could make reference to the power of God. One occurs in Isaiah fourteen twenty four: The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. Did you know that not one of us in this room could say that about our lives? 
We, we might think that we're self-made people. We might think that we have the world by the tail. We might think that whatever we set our mind on, we can accomplish. But at the end of the day, we all acknowledge something might mess up our plans. Something might foil our dreams. With the Lord, though, whatever he plans, it most certainly comes to pass. Two verses later in Isaiah fourteen twenty six, this is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. Remember the former things of old. I am God. There is no other. By the way, that is one of my favorite verses to read to my Mormon missionary friends. Please remember that at the center of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the so-called law of eternal progression that is stated as follows. As man is, God once was, and as God is, man may become. That is to say, God used to be a man, and you will become a God if you're a male. That is what the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints teaches They have since the days of Joseph Smith and continue to teach and promulgate that lie. How do we know it's a lie? Because scripture says there is one God. There is no other. I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. You know what's at the end of that statement? Period. I will accomplish my purpose. Isaiah chapter 55, 11, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. I did not get permission to share this story, but I, I don't think I, I'm on thin ice in any way, shape, or form. I do want to mention one person because I was so proud of him when I heard this. Uh, where's he at? Jordan. Jordan Balvance. Uh, it was a couple of weeks ago. I was talking to Jordan. And it, just, it, it, it was just off to the side. Jordan happened to tell me that he read the book of Romans that week. And I thought, I have to tell you, Jordan, I was super impressed. I was like, you read the book of Romans? Like all, all 11 chapters? I mean, 16 chapters? You're like, have you read the book of Romans? And I thought that was really cool. And I kind of forgot about it until a few days later, I was talking with a couple of the guys. This is last Sunday. And someone else told me that he indeed had read the book of Romans, all 16 chapters that week. And guess what? I was super impressed. Because I remember when we started this book together, I gave two challenges. One was to memorize at least one verse from every chapter. So when we're done with the series, the church family, all of us will have 16 verses that we've memorized. That's simple, guys, right? That's simple stuff, right? But then I also encourage you to be reading the book of Romans. And so last week when the brother said that he also had read the book of Romans, I thought that that is so sweet, but that's nothing. That's absolutely nothing. I don't know who started this and I don't know who I need to thank, but someone, some man at Christ Fellowship got a group of other men together and said, we're going to commit to reading the entire book of Romans once a week 
until Pastor Dave gets done with this series. I don't think they have any idea how long this is going to go, right? <laughs> this is not one of the mini-series, right? This is going to go... At least until 2020, right? I mean, I might be a senior citizen by the time we're done with this. And so think about this. And the reason I share this story is Isaiah chapter 55 says that God's word accomplishes what it sets out to accomplish. God's word will not return void. And here's the thought I had. I don't know how many men are reading the book of Romans on a weekly basis, all 16 chapters. But I do know this, men, if you continue that practice and we do that all the way to the end of the series, I will make a guarantee. God will do mighty things in your life and in the life of this church family, right? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. I can't help but wonder what God will do in this place when a group of men, and maybe that means the women need to jump on the bandwagon and do something similar. And I've heard that they are doing something similar. I just don't know what it is, but I bet it's pretty exciting. And see, I'm not a woman. I'm not privy to that information. But just imagine what will happen in the life of this church family if we read and study and meditate and memorize on God's word over and over and over and over again? I see blessings. I see amazing things taking place in the life of this church family. Psalm chapter 115 verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Now, Somewhere along the way, and I don't know where it happened in church history, and I don't know if anyone could even identify where it happened or why it happened, but somewhere along the way, the Christians, some of the Christians at least, began to drink the Kool-Aid. Do you know what I mean by that? They began to drink the Kool-Aid. That is, they began to buy the lie. They began to buy the lie that, and I've heard this so many times, that God limits his power... Or his power is limited due to the free will of the creature. Have you heard that one? That God stands back and allows your creaturely freedom to mess up his plans. And nothing can be further from the truth. God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. And so if you have been coerced somewhere along the way and and tricked into believing the notion that God's power is limited by the free will of the creature, I urge you, I beg you to come back to reality. God's power is limited by no one. His power is limited by nothing. His power is supreme. It's authoritative. His power is unstoppable. Now, the only way to turn back to the reality of that situation is to turn to the Word of God. And I want to walk through with you what that unstoppable power looks like by asking this question, exactly what can this power accomplish? What can it accomplish? First, it will draw the most hardened sinner to saving grace. Now, if, if you were here today and you were converted, if you were regenerate, if you were a Christian, you know something that is true about you is that you used to be a hardened sinner. You used to be a hardened sinner. It's the way every person is prior to conversion. John chapter 6, verse 44, no one can come to me, Jesus said, 
unless the Father who sent me draws him. And so this power will draw the most hardened sinner to saving grace. Secondly, it will cause the deaf to hear and respond to the message of the gospel. Jesus says in John 10, 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Here he is with his disciples around him. And he says, guys, there are other sheep that are not yet of this fold. I bring them also and they will listen to my voice. I think I read that verse Probably dozens and dozens of times. And then one day I realized what Jesus was saying. He was saying that he draws the people of God irresistibly to himself. When, when, you, when you line up the power of God against the so-called free will of the creature, guess who wins every time? God always wins. And so he says, they will listen to my voice. And I've shared this many times. One of my all-time favorite verses in the book of Acts is at the very end of the book, Acts 28, 28. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. They will listen. So for you, the evangelist, and who are the evangelists in this room? Every Christian is an evangelist. Now, some of you are uniquely gifted to be evangelists. Some of you say not so much, but you still have the obligation to be an evangelist. You have that obligation to share the message of the gospel as God gives you opportunity. Remember this, all of God's elect will come to faith. Your job is the simple part of the the task. Just share the message. Your job is not to trick people or coerce people or manipulate people or strong arm people into the kingdom. Your job is to simply tell them that they're sinners under the wrath of almighty God and that God sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the God man to stand in their place, to live the life that they can never live and to die the death that all of them, including all of us, deserve to die. And that if anyone believes in the gospel, they turn from their sin. He or she will receive everlasting life. There's another thing this power can do. It will soften the most hardened heart. The promise of the new covenant in Ezekiel 36, 26 The prophet says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Something else this unstoppable power accomplishes, it will transform the cynic and it will convince the skeptic. Some of you are readers of C.S. Lewis. You remember before C.S. Lewis was a follower of Jesus Christ. He was a skeptic. Indeed, he was a a high-order agnostic or an atheist. And he says this, You must picture me now alone in the room in Magdalene, night after night, feeling whatever my mind lifted for even a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him, that is God, whom I earnestly desired not to meet. He says, that which I greatly feared had come upon me in the term of 1929. I gave in. I admitted that God was God 
and I knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. Who won, God or C.S. Lewis? God wins. He goes on, I did not then see what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet, but who can duly adore that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape? The answer, the hardness of God is kinder than the softest softness of men, and his compulsion is our liberation. There's one more thing among many that this power can accomplish, and that is that it opens the eyes of the spiritually blind. In Acts chapter 9, we read the story of, of Saul, the killer of Christians, the persecutor of Christians. And on the Damascus road, what happened? The, the scales fell from his eyes and he was miraculously born again. And God has sovereignly used him to write a good chunk of the pages of the New Testament. As I was thinking about the power of God to open the eyes of the spiritually blind, I got to thinking about something that happened yesterday with my wife and I. We spent the day in Vancouver, B.C., and we kind of have a rule when we go to BC and it kind of goes like this. I always get lost. Do you ever get lost? It's like, you, you, you. who built that city? There's, there's no points of reference. You're always like deep down in. You're just like, and if it weren't for the N, the W, the S, and the E on my computer, on the car, I'd have no idea where I was at. I mean, I'd end up in Tallahassee probably, right? We finally found our way out of the city and we started to to head out and look for the freeway and on our way out it, it just happened almost instantaneously Doreen says look honey and i look over there is homelessness like i have never witnessed before you think seattle has a homeless problem go to vancouver because for at least three and a half miles, the whole way, both sides of the street are piled to the shoulders with garbage, dirty needles, feces, hookers, drug addicts, lonely, deprived, lost, people who have just checked out of life and it went on mile after mile and you can only imagine what it did to, to my spirit and the spirit of my wife. It, it brought on a certain feeling of hopelessness. How will these people ever get help? As we drove down that avenue, I couldn't help but think about the spiritually blind and the spiritually deaf and the spiritually incapable. Those whose hearts were hardened to the truth of the gospel. But here's what we remember and here's what we recall as we read this verse in verse 16 of Romans chapter 1. That God has the power to reach down and transform that prostitute. 
God has the power to reach down and transform that drug addict. God has the power to reach down and and miraculously change that alcoholic who's been an alcoholic since he was 11 years old. Now he's in his 50s. And he's, he's utterly hooked on drugs and alcohol. God can reach down. His power is unstoppable. He can do that in the lives of people. This is the unstoppable power of the living God. I want to challenge you to think deeply about your assumptions concerning the nature of God. And once again, have you been duped into believing or embracing a, a God who limits his power or... Do you believe in a God whose power is absolutely unstoppable and unhindered? And to make this very practical, I want to challenge you to keep on praying for your non-Christian friends. Keep on praying for your non-Christian friends. Follow the example of Augustine's mother who prayed and prayed and prayed. That poor woman must have had scabs on her knees. But one day God awakened Augustine. And he can do the same for your friend or your son or your daughter or your mom or your dad or your spouse or whoever it is that you're concerned about. Pray for your non-believing friends. I have a friend who I've been praying for since I was eight years old. And I'm not giving up. I'm going to continue to pray for my dear friend. Please understand This unstoppable power in verse 16 has a specific purpose. If you'll look back at the verse, he says that it is the power of God. And here's the purpose for salvation. It is the power of God for salvation. And so move with me from the unstoppable power to undeserved deliverance undeserved deliverance. The word salvation that occurs in verse 16 comes from a Greek word that means this, and I I want you to meditate on this for just a minute. It's the state of being delivered by divine judgment. My fear is that many people in local churches see this definition, and they, I I don't mean to sound glib, but they come across like, oh, that's nice. Oh, yeah, soteriology. Yeah, I heard about that once. Think about this. Think, Think really clearly about your condition now and your condition before you were a Christian. Before you were a Christian, you were on a path to hell. You were on the path of eternal judgment. Salvation tells us this. We have been delivered from divine judgment. You'll recall way back at the beginning of redemptive history when God had this talk, if you will, with Adam. And he commanded Adam, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, fast forward, as you know, the rest of the story, fast forward to the pages of the New Testament. Romans chapter three, Paul says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Now, the Puritans, these are my heroes, and I hope they're becoming your heroes as well. They held that there is an initial step that preceded, that came before conversion. 
Something took place in the heart and the mind of a sinner before they believed in the saving work of Jesus. And they refer to this preceding work as legal terrors, legal terrors. Jonathan Edwards' father, Timothy Edwards, he preached a sermon in 1695 where he said this, quote, One had to be so overcome by one's sinfulness as to experience the terror of total humiliation before knowing the total dependence on God's grace, end quote. I think there's great wisdom here in what Jonathan Edwards' father was preaching as he embraced this Puritan mindset referred to as legal terrors. We must indeed come face to face with our desperate condition apart from grace and apart from Christ, knowing our helpless condition apart from Christ, we are now in a position to receive the undeserved salvation from God through Jesus Christ. Now, as we think about, as we meditate on this point of undeserved deliverance, there are two angles that I want to have you focus on. Angle number one, And this will be for for many of you, you will focus on this. If you are a Christian, angle number one looks like this. I want to encourage you to once again remember the depths of your salvation. Many of you remember the song that we sing. And the song goes something like this. Thank you for saving me. What can I say? I love that song. I hope you love that song because that should be one of the themes of our lives. Thank you for saving me. What can I say? And so we remember our status before God rescued us from the penalty and the power of sin. That should lead us to say, thank you for saving me. We remember how God rescued us even in our undeserving state. We remember that God bestowed grace upon us and showered us with mercy with which he did not have to give us. You see, the minute we say that mercy is something that God is obligated to give us, then it's no longer mercy. By definition, mercy is non-obligatory. That is to say, God doesn't have to give mercy to anyone. He chooses to sovereignly give mercy to those whom he chooses. We'll see that when we get to Romans 9. That's angle number one. Now, angle number two is for the rest of you if you are not yet a follower of Jesus Christ. And so put your seatbelt on for just a second. If you're not a Christian, I want to challenge you with this angle. The way I want to challenge you is for you to feel the weightiness of your sin. You see, we live in a culture where when you do something wrong, if you do something evil and you go to someone and you say, please forgive me, this is kind of the stock answer. Oh, it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. We used to do this with our children when they were young. One of our children would wrong their sibling. And that sibling would go and they would have this conversation, right? And let's say the older would say to the younger, I'm sorry I did that to you. And the younger would say, oh, it's no big deal. And we would teach them from the earliest ages, no, 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 this is a big deal. This is a big deal. You were sinned against. You were wronged. You were mistreated. You were lied to. They stole your toy. They stole your latte, right? No, maybe not the latte. (laughs) We train our kids right, right? 
But we taught our kids to say, I forgive you. And so if you're a non-believer today, your sin is a big deal. Your sin ultimately will lead you to spend all eternity under the wrath of Almighty God. And so I plead with you to see that apart from Christ, you will perish in your sin. Apart from Christ, you will bear the weight of all your sin in hell, and you will find yourself under the almighty justice of God forever and ever and ever. And so the greatest encouragement I can give to my non-believing friends today is this. Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn to the cross. Turn to his saving benefits on the cross. Believe in all that he accomplished for, for you and turn your back. Repent of your sin. There's a third thing I want you to see, and that is unrestricted audience. The unrestricted audience. In verse 16, we've already seen this, that it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Pay close attention to the word to everyone. Everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Three things, three observations. Number one, this unrestricted audience is a double-edged sword. You say, what do you mean by a double-edged sword? Well, and... Follow me here for a minute because it's going to sound like I'm going liberal. I promise I'm not. This gospel is inclusive. Some of you know what I mean by that, the, the concern that you might have. It is inclusive. That is to say, this gospel is for everyone who believes. There's two kinds of people in this world. The, the Jew and the non-Jew. The Jew and the Greek. And most of us here, I would imagine that 98% of us are the non-Jew. A few of you may be Jews. And if you are, I'd love to meet you. I love to meet Hebrew people. But whether you're a Jew or a non-Jew, salvation is for you. It's a universal offer. No one is excluded. Make sure you don't miss the significance of this. This is an absolutely amazing statement, is it not? That the gospel includes all people who will receive it because if you consider the flow of redemptive history you will remember this in the old testament god set his affection on one group of people and i'll give you a hint it wasn't the moabites wasn't the babylonians wasn't the lindenites it wasn't the eversonianites i just made that up who did he set his affection on he set his affection on israel and israel alone but then a shift takes place in the book of acts and you can read it for yourself later in the day acts chapter 13 verses 47 and 48 i like to call this the jewish gentile shift when god opens up his salvific plan his the message of the gospel is now to include all the people groups It's to include both the jews and the non-jews alike and so this gospel is for all people. You say, where's the double-edged sword? That's part of the double-edged sword. The other part of the sword is this. The gospel excludes some. The gospel excludes some. It is, by definition, exclusive. Why? Because sinners who believe are saved from the wrath of God. Sinners who refuse to believe endure the wrath of God for all eternity. 
we've seen what it means to believe. It not only means to think to be true, it means to place my trust in a person, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we look at unrestricted audience, remember the double-edged sword. But there's two more things. Number two, this is a gracious invitation. The message of the gospel is a gracious invitation. Sinners are invited to come to the table. Sinners are, to inv- sinners are invited to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah 55, verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. You see, the gospel is this beautiful invitation for you to receive. But, and this is what I remember growing up with in Sunday school. I think I could have told you off the top of my head that the gospel is a beautiful invitation. Jesus invites sinners to believe the gospel. The apostles invite sinners to believe the gospel. But here's what I missed somewhere along the way. Point number three. It's not only a gracious invitation... The gospel, the gospel is an authoritative command. That is to say, sinners are commanded to believe in Jesus. Isn't that interesting? We are invited to believe in Jesus, but we are also commanded to believe in Jesus. You say, where do you get that? Acts 16, 31. And this is the verse that I would have used as a young man to call people to faith and continue to do that. It says, believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Yes, that is an invitation. But the tense of the verb there, what kind of verb is this? It's an aorist, active, imperative. Wow. Wow. So we're not only given the opportunity to believe, we are commanded to believe, which leads to this question. Do you believe in Jesus and his gospel? Do you trust in him? Do you rely on Jesus alone for your salvation? For the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Look now with me in the remaining moments at Paul's third statement back in Romans chapter 1. Verse 17. He says, for in, there's a word here that you might want to circle. Anyone want to guess? It. For in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. What is Paul driving at here? When he says the righteousness, and this is the third statement, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. Let's go to the next slide and examine that. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. What's Paul driving at? Two very important points. One is a right understanding of God. We've looked at this quote many times over the years, but it's the line and the opening pages of A.W. Tozer's book, The Knowledge of the Holy. He says this, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So necessary to the church is a lofty concept of God that when that concept in any measure declines, the church with her worship and her moral standards declines along with it. Now notice what Tozer says. And think about the American church. The first step down for any church is taken 
when it surrenders its high opinion of God. End quote. So Tozer wrote those words in 1961. He had no idea what it would be like in 2019. Because you look across the theological and ecclesiastical landscape, you see that many churches have surrendered a high view of God. The very first line in John Calvin's Institutes goes something like this. It's one of the most important sentences I've read outside of Scripture. He says, our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts. The knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. You want to figure out what it means to live on this planet? Figure out who you are and figure out who God is. And so Paul says, for in it, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is. Is revealed. Righteousness comes from a Greek word that means to be put right, to be upright or righteous. Martin Luther helps us to understand why a right understanding of God is absolutely essential. And I should tell you that as we study through the book of Romans, we're going to look from time to time at Luther. We're going to learn from his, his musings and his writings and his commentary. He's very helpful. He says this. God's righteousness is that by which we become worthy of his great salvation or through which alone we are accounted righteous before him. But this is most likely not only the righteousness of God, but also the righteousness that comes from God. That is, our right standing with God comes from God himself. We'll see when we get to Romans 4. Luther called this an alien righteousness. It's not a very 16th century term, is it? An alien righteousness. We need the righteousness of another, he said, so that we can have right standing with God. Move with me from a right understanding of God to a right understanding of the gospel, which we have labored over the last couple of weeks. Luther continues, only the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. That is, who is righteous or how a person becomes righteous before God, namely, alone by faith, which trusts the word of God. And so the righteousness of God says this. The righteousness of God, Romans 1 says, is revealed from faith for faith. I don't know about you, but that's one that could trick someone up. What does it mean when he says the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith? That is, our trust in the righteousness of God is grounded in faith that is offered by God, but continues to grow stronger and stronger and stronger as we mature as Christians. That is, we are progressively conformed into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. And we, with all unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Here's a challenge. What steps can you begin to take this week to begin to build a more robust faith? I know what some of the... Some of the gentlemen at Christ Fellowship are doing. They're reading the book of Romans every week. And the women are involved in something like that as well. It's an exciting thing. What can we do to build a more 
robust faith. Perhaps you make a commitment to to share your faith more. Perhaps you commit to using your gifts in the body of Christ. Tomorrow the elders will meet and we have many things that we will put on the table, things that we will be sharing more about in the days to come, but they're all exciting things. And one of the things that surfaced the most for me in these discussions is this. We need 100% participation. You're going to be hearing that more and more. Uh, the chairman of the board, Ken Olson, he kind of picked up on this. I said it a couple weeks ago as I prepared you for a, a, a new round of Veritas classes in the month of September. September is I encourage 100% participation. Who does that? Christ Fellowship does that. Who encourages 100% participation from the membership to use their spiritual gifts? Christ Fellowship does, and the reason we do is that's what Scripture calls us to do. And so let me say positively, let me beg you if I need to, we need your help. We need your help. Let me say something very practical. If you are skilled with your hands and you are a master with the paintbrush and you like to help with those kinds of things, would you call Aaron Holder and say, Aaron, what can I do to help? I will make you a promise. He'll find something for you to do. You think you have a few things, Aaron, you could find for these people to do? He would love to plug you in and, and link you up with your unique skill set. And so we need help How can you commit to a more robust faith? Perhaps you're going to commit to a more robust prayer life. One of the things that I visit with pastors about, myself included, is for the most part, I hear pastors, myself included, wishing that we had a more robust prayer life. I hear it all the time, and I think the same is true for the people of God. Perhaps you need to commit yourself to to reading good Christian books, to reading the Bible, to getting on a robust reading plan. What steps can you put in place so that your faith will continue to grow this week and for the remainder of your days? See, in the gospel, we see not what we have done for God, but what God has done for us in Christ. And this is a theme that we will return to over and over again. It is not what we have done for God. It is what God has done for us in Christ. I I read a book last week with a a paragraph that really struck me. It's a paragraph by Sam Storms. And he says this. He says, Many Christians live in an if-then relationship with God. You kind of have that in your mind? An if-then relationship with God. He explains it like this. Their view is, If I do what is right, then God will love me. If I give extra money to missions, then I will be spared suffering and humiliation, etc., etc. It's a conditional relationship that is based on the principle of merit. The gospel calls us to live in a because, therefore, relationship with the Lord. Because we have been justified by faith in Christ, therefore, we have peace with God. Because Christ died for us, therefore we are forgiven. Because Christ has fulfilled the law in our place, therefore we are set free from its demands and penalty. This is an unconditional relationship, Storm says, that is based on the principle of grace. 
The difference between these two perspectives is the difference between religion, that's the if-then model, and the gospel, which is the because-therefore model. And then Storms concludes by saying the religious life is not the gospel-centered life. And so if you look back at Romans 1, Paul rehearses these statements for us. I am not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, and the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. These are the first three statements that make up what we're calling the gospel-saturated life. As we close, let me ask you, is the gospel-saturated life a reflection of your heart? Is the gospel-saturated life a, a reflection of your passions and your desires and your inclinations? And finally, are you a religious person that carries an if-then mentality? Or are you a gospel-centered person who lives with a because-therefore mentality? You see, the difference between that top line if then, and the bottom line, because therefore, is night and day. If then, that's all the other world religions. If then is Mormonism, and Buddhism, and Jehovah's Witnesses, and Islam, and all the other world religions you can think of. Because therefore, is historic Christianity. Because Christ died for us, therefore, we can be forgiven. Because Christ has fulfilled the law in our place, therefore, we are set free from its demands. This is the beauty, the absolute stunning beauty of the gospel-saturated life. Next week, we will turn our attention to the fourth statement that Paul makes in Romans 1.17. And I want to brace you. It is an absolutely stunning statement. Let me share it with you. He says, the righteous shall live by faith. I'll tell you, this fourth statement is so important. We're literally going to take two more weeks to unpack it because it's one of the most important sentences in the Bible. This is the sentence that Martin Luther said. He says, the doctrine of justification is the the doctrine of justification by faith alone is the article upon which the church stands or falls. If we compromise justification, if we marginalize justification, if we discount justification, we fail as a church and we fail as believers. May God help us to be faithful to his living word. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the challenge in these short verses we thank you for the, the power of the gospel. We thank you for revealing the righteousness of God in the gospel. Lord, I pray that you would um, help us not to be deceived by uh, works-oriented religion. Help us not to be if-then people. Help us to be because-therefore people. To recognize all that God has done for us when he sent when you sent the Lord Jesus Christ to be the final payment for our sins. Lord, I pray that there would be liberation for someone today as they have heard the gospel, perhaps for the first time. Once again, that they would see the Lord Jesus and savor his beauty, that they would live for his glory, 
that today would be the day of salvation when they would when they would turn from their sins and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. We truly desire to live lives that are gospel saturated. And so prepare us as we come back next week to unpack this this monumental fourth statement that the righteous shall live by faith. And now, Lord, accept this worship from hearts that are uh, beating for your glory and desire to worship you and to glorify you in Jesus name. Amen.